Hello everybody and uh, welcome to the 130th edition of the Frank and Stan chat and for those of you watching on video um, you'll see that we have a guest Samina Chowdhury has at long last joined us because we've tried to arrange this for a, a couple of times but have. things have defeated us but uh, welcome Samina welcome thank you thank yeah, you very great, much great to have you um, I know that you know. Sort of impressed by you know the work you've been doing, and uh, uh, somebody from a cooperative background. There's so much cooperation, uh, the principles of cooperation in 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 your thinking and in your work. But anyway, how are you, Stan? Uh, I'm I'm fine, Frank. But how are you? Because you had a chest infection last time. <clears> I did. I uh, had some antibiotics, and it got rid of it. But now, Mrs. Norris has got it, and this is the first oh, illness in our 42 year marriage where she's had to go to the doctors. So, uh, yeah, she's so got this chest infection. It's the first out. time you've had to look after her in 42 years. Well, uh, I, do you know <laughs> what? That'd be good, Frank. Can I just say, I've managed to keep the show on the road for three days. I am, <laughs> I'm so impressed with myself. But I'm keeping that to myself, and now I'm sharing it more widely. Uh, but no, uh, I think also uh, the family rely heavily on Arlene to do a lot of stuff around Christmas, and she's getting anxious now that she's not going to be as ready as she'd want to be. But uh, I managed to get the Christmas decorations up yesterday um, and I think they got a, approval. So I was quite impressed with myself. Things aren't <laughs> well quite done. in the place where they normally go, but everything's <laughs> out and it looks Christmassy. Frank, the secret is always to take a photograph of everything. So you got look back over your pictures to last year, <laughs> and make sure everything back where it was. <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, yeah, we're, we're I think on. though, um, uh, Frank, I think there's a program there to find out how Mrs. Norris has managed to avoid the doctors for 42 years. Well, I think that's I, I, lots I, of people I, want to hear about that. I think, Samina, it is. Uh, uh, it runs in the family. Uh, she's uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, she's got a sort of uh, Indian heritage and uh, there was something about not overeating and and eat and it's funny eating slowly her father was a mm -hmm. you know ate very very slowly so he would he would have a very small portion and, and he would be the last one to leave the table uh, and also eating healthily and and being reasonably mm -hmm. active you know I think all of that I've benefited greatly from that you know and I think you know that's why she's avoided it I think but also she's got a She's one of those that I'm going to see myself through this. You know, I'm, I'm not going to yeah. defeat me. Keeps going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fights so back. She, she, uh, she's remarkable. Um, but I think the pressure has built. The family have been on to her, you know, from every quarter. So she's relented today. So anyway. Um, oh. Samina, there may be some people here mm -hmm. who have no idea who you are. So do you want to just give a little uh, outline of your career and what you're interested in? Yes, um, I've started off in secondary education in Sheffield, uh, did a number of roles in Sheffield. Uh, so I'm based in Yorkshire. Um, I actually worked in a college, worked, done teacher training at uh, Sheffield Hallam University. I've also worked for the local authority and that's where I started working cross phase. Uh, so like I said, 18 years in, in Sheffield initially in lots of different roles. Very fortunate that it was sort of, um, the late 80s 
and there are lots of opportunities to cross fertilize and do new roles. I think it'd be harder to do that nowadays. Yeah. Then I worked as a head of service in North Lincolnshire for five years, wow. three years in Leeds as a senior advisor. And then uh, I went back and did quite a bit of work in North Lincolnshire as part of my uh, consultancy because I set up my own consultancy. And then I, um, for the last three and a bit years, I've been working in Doncaster Local Authority as a senior advisor as well. And I think when I was in um, Sheffield, I had the opportunity to train for Ofsted as well. That was in 2003, many, many frameworks ago. Uh, but that was when you went wow. in as a team for five five days as a subject specialist, uh, which I probably think was the right way to do things at that particular point. Mm -hmm. I know it's very expensive, but it was a really good way of getting subject specialists in who knew knew the um, you know role and what was expected. But also you had the time to do it properly as well. And also you're an author. I am an author, yes. So uh, basically... Did you, did you ever think you would be an author? Um, I have been writing articles right. on and off and uh, chapters in books and uh, a few articles uh, probably about five years ago for um, like Schools Week and Times Educational Supplement. I found that actually harder than writing the book because trying to get everything in that you want to say in 700 words or so <laughs> is not the easiest right. thing to do. So I think it was a natural progression then from writing chapters to actually sitting down and writing the book and my um, publishers actually approached me. They'd, they'd seen some of the work that I'd done and heard me speaking at a, one of the conferences. And so they commissioned me to write the book. And it was something that I'd been meaning to do for the last 10 years, but I just needed that sort of incentive to actually sit down and write it. So, so yes, thank the you. The theme of this is it's called Equitable Education, isn't it? And it is. So just explore, uh, explain a little bit about why you went down that route. Yeah, I think... Right from the outset, when I went into teaching, it was very much about the difference that teachers and schools make to the lives of children, young people. And all the, the, the book is basically a culmination of the research evidence that I had come across and done as part of my own personal development, as well as the qualifications that I had achieved. And it was based on the advice that I was given uh, senior leaders latterly, because that's been most of my work and obviously teacher training and so on. And the same recurring themes were coming across. So it just made sense to put that into a book and have it in one place rather than having lots of uh, PowerPoint modules here <laughs> and, and, and there. And um, yeah, so I think it, and a lot of it is based on my personal experience of working with schools. And I do have case studies in, in the book and they're all based on either children, that are, children, young people that I've taught or that you know we've been using as case studies to address in terms of improving standards and outcomes for for think, these young people i found it easier to talk to senior leaders i mean did this on an executive leaders um, course where i spoke about two weeks ago where you talk about the, the the term equity and you actually ask people what do you understand by the term equity and actually they find it really difficult to explain uh -huh. what that actually means and what the difference between that and equality is. And uh, I think the thing for me was that um, giving people, it's as if this is a bit of the sort of, a bit of training or development that has simply not really had much focus because 
I think some when you when they understand it, they then say, "Oh yeah, I get that." But actually, I don't think I can make that work. Yeah, there are too and many, it is hard. There are too it many is things, hard. both in the in the accountability framework, but also in yeah. their sort of upbringing and their training to actually sort of tackle. You, you, you really do need to unpick quite a lot of stuff to yeah. commit yeah. to equity, don't you? In leadership, Frank, yeah, uh, we used to say, yeah. uh, treating people the same isn't necessarily treating them fairly. And that was like, you could see people saying, what are you talking about? Yeah. I, I, I treat all my staff the same. Yeah, but that might not be treating them fairly. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard for people to get their head around that, that that's not equity. That, that just because you're saying, well, everybody gets the same. Yeah. It's not right. No. I, I think you're right, Stan. And I think, you know, there is um, a prevalence of equality of opportunity. Everybody has the same opportunities, but they don't. It's the barriers that impede, yeah. um, you know, the, the opportunity to access, you know, what is available. And I think for me, it's also even moving on from equity, it's about social justice. Yeah. And that is, as you said, Frank, a really hard you know, people generally, it's very rarely people come across and say, no, I don't believe in, in the concept. It is about what practices and processes you need to have in school to enable that to happen. And that's why, you know, right, uh, I wrote the book. So it's really about understanding the needs of the pupils that you've got in front of you in your school, in your context, yeah. and understanding them and looking at it from their perspective rather than what you feel that they need. And it, so it's turning it inside out. And I think for me, one of the fundamental things that I've learned from being in education for 30 plus years is very much that if we get it right for some of our vulnerable groups then actually the education system so we need to you know would be much better and we need to turn it inside out we focus too much on everybody doing well and I'm not saying that that isn't important but we do know from the research that actually family background is really really critical and you know, we do see these cases of, um, you know, families really supporting their children to get the best out of their education and other opportunities. However, if we really focus and really understand the needs of the children that we've got in our schools, that's where I think we can, you know, make a big difference. And actually listening to children, young people, and pupil voice is getting better, but I think there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. But also parental and community engagement and really yeah. hearing and listening to the parents. So it's a it's a two-way process, not done to, not that we are the experts and we know everything. Yes, we do have expertise and we should use that. But actually, I think a bit of humility is sometimes needed and genuine reaching out to those communities and understanding it. Living the you know, living a day in the life of know, some right. of our children, young people would give us that absolute insight, you know, rather than what we think in our lives and how we live and then trying to transfer that. Across. I think the, pan the pandemic, the one of the benefits of the pandemic was in some, even the schools, I'm thinking of a school um, in a northern city, right in the centre of the city, that, that clearly has significant you know the, the the community is under considerable strain economic strain you know whatever it may yes. be but actually the pandemic even though the staff felt they knew their pupils really well the fact that they had to at times go out and visit the house visit the home directly yes. speak to parents you know i think even for some of those staff it was a shock they, they mm -hmm. their view of what the living conditions were like the view of the support yes. or lack of that these yes. children had 
it really sort of brought home that sort of social element of the purpose of schooling yes. you know um yeah. even in the most you know trying of conditions that, that it was a shock for many to see what they were yeah and I think that's probably the first time many teachers and staff have actually had that insight. And then if you add to it, you know, the fact that there was a lot of online teaching going on as well. And again, that was a window into some of our uh, children's lives as well, wasn't it? That we wouldn't have had that insight, you know, through a camera in that sense. I know it was about learning, but you do actually see bits of other dynamics taking place and the conditions that, you know, children, young people may be living in as well. Yeah, I think... Um... It's interesting because I saw, um, again, I can't reveal um, the, the school, but there was a school that I saw um, uh, an Ofsted report of, which actually seemed to get a feel for what the circumstances of the community were, you know, but also a similar report done at the same time where it was as if a group of inspectors had come in without really trying to get under the skin of the school and yeah. and and somebody responded uh, to a tweet I, I i put out last week saying that in effect you know we do need a it also needs to have a completely sort of set standard about what is good and what isn't and actually you know i i, I responded by saying well this isn't regulatory this is actually about professional judgment and and those people who do inspections you know need to un, have a have that sort of depth of understanding. And I, I'm really not sure that many of them do, you know, because we all face our own reality from what we know and what we experience. We think we know what it's like, yeah. but I don't think yeah. some of them do, you know, and that's where the variability in all of this and why some of our communities in the most challenging of areas yeah. really aren't properly supported. Yeah. yeah, one of my schools that I, I worked with probably two years ago now um, in um town in the north um, with with a lot of social problems but their induction into the school into the uh, nursery unit and then to reception was stunningly good in that two staff visited every home of every child that was coming and had a conversation in the home with the parents their risk assessment was was absolutely <laughs> just <laughs> When you know, I didn't visit the homes, but I read the risk assessment that had developed over the years on the experience they'd had, and it was it was frightening in a way that that this was these kind of things happened, but it but the professionalism of the of the uh, teachers and support staff who did this process was absolutely fantastic, and mm. and the information gained was shared then through the school. It's uh, it was an outstanding school in a very poor area. Yeah. Yeah, and these are these transition points. This is always making me think about, mm. you know, uh, preschool into mainstream school into an early year setting, you know, within a school, yeah. and then key stage two to key stage three and whatever, you know, that passing of the baton, you know, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if you do it properly and do it well, um, but, you know, I don't know. It feels very fractured, you know, as very... When I um, lived, when I was ahead, we most of our kids went into one secondary school, and we were able to do sort of joint curriculum work. So we, I remember, we did a project called Bubbles, um, and uh, th that was the, the second half of the summer term. And so the, the 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 pupils took their books up from all the various primary schools that were feeding into this large secondary school, uh -huh. uh, and of course, just a simple thing like taking your book up. 
actually for a secondary school teacher in you know in year seven it says a lot about the sort of standards that were being achieved in primary settings as well as the quality of the work they were producing but we, we can't even appear to do that you know it's as if in primary schools still the children take their books home at the end of the summer term in year six you know when it actually the most valuable bit of evidence a year seven teacher could have is the work they were doing at the end of year six Frank, we, the you know i said last week i did some uh, some research some reporting in in stoke and the consistent part of, of their project was that they gave supply money for secondary schools for maths teachers to go into primaries and the consistent feedback from every single high school subject leader that we spoke to was we're having to change our curriculum because what they're doing in year five and six in the primary is ahead of what yeah. we're doing in, yeah. in year seven and partly into year eight. Apart from some gaps, which they identified, and you wouldn't be surprised to know things like measure yeah. and space, which are no yeah. longer on being tested. Yeah. So they're the ones that, that aren't done quite as well. But it was it was really refreshing to see these these teachers and and heads of math saying we need to rethink how we start in year seven because we're we're just treading water and move it on. See, and I think there is that issue, isn't there, in in key stage three of you know replication and replication of stuff yeah. that children may have done in primary, but similarly where there are the gaps, they don't necessarily get picked up. No. But I also think it is really complex nowadays, as you've already said, you know, Frank. I think previously you'd had your natural feeder schools and you'd yeah. build those relationships and you'd do you know teach in both ways, uh, you know, in an ideal sort of situation. But now you know when you do look at the secondary schools that we have um especially where where i am you know most of them are academies and they are pulling in children from really yeah, really wide you know, lots of primary yeah. schools so it, it's quite a, a tricky I, I situation agree. for them to address but that would from a pupil's perspective would make a big difference i mean what one subject that um i'm passionate about is languages right. and you know that you know i mean we have Nominally, I will say, because it's not very good teaching of modern foreign languages in uh, primary and key stage, upper key stage two. Um, and yet it's not taught very well in primary because you don't necessarily have the subject specialists. You don't do it earlier on, which is bonkers. We haven't got the teachers in primary, all of that sort of stuff. And then they go to secondary and then depends very much on what, you know, language what? they teach. So you don't even get that continuity. So if you've got no. a child that's developed that passion, then all of a sudden you're knocking it on the head and then starting afresh. And then you wonder why we're not getting children doing more, um, you know, modern languages uh, at GCSE because yeah. the whole system is fractured and not enabling that smooth journey. And personally, for me, I would want children to have the opportunity to study a range of languages so yeah. that they can in secondary then decide two or three. You know, I mean, that's the norm in Europe and the rest of the world. But we're still, you know, think, oh, languages is really hard, but we don't support the, the, right. the learning and teaching of languages at all in in the England, you know, education system at all. It's appalling. It's we've had times where things have been moving forward, but then similarly it's gone backwards in many ways. A positive I, my experience is that that uh, if if you're in a primary school and you remember French or Spanish from when you went to school, you become the coordinator. <laughs> yes. And and that subject then becomes <laughs> modern foreign language. 
and and the yeah. high school may have, have decided that German is there. So so there is no continuity whatsoever in yeah. that in that gap. It, it's yeah. real. It's really worrying. Some positive uh, news is because actually we're over twenty minutes and we haven't got on to what's called our right. So this happens all the time. But there were um, I noticed an article this morning where some Ukrainian uh, uh, children who have been in the UK uh, in Wales actually for eleven weeks are now fluent in Welsh. You know, and, and uh, it's funny, we, we, we visit North Wales quite a lot. So we go to uh, uh, a little museum called Pemmaun Museum. Um, and they uh, that little village is accommodating three Ukrainian families, one of one of whom the mother of, of one of the families is working in the cafe in the museum. And her she had sort of limited English, but her English has just uh, come on immensely during that time, you know, um, and uh, she started on the Welsh as well. You know, I mean, it's just just immersing yourself, isn't it? You know, at the end of the day. It is. And actually, if you learn, you know, one language, learning another or subsequent languages is much easier. And like I said, it's the norm in the rest of the world. It's just in England. We have obviously because of the prevalence of English, but also we have got ingrained attitudes to where, towards learning another another language when actually it is the most natural thing that is possible. Obviously, you need to put in good teaching and everything else yeah. to enable that to happen, uh, particularly for academic purposes. But we're too resistant and uh, have lots of uh, sort of hang-ups about languages. Uh, my, my son's really into that. He's, he's actually learning Welsh at the moment. Is he? Yeah, because um, he did Japanese at, at, um, at secondary school uh, and French, I think. Uh, he speaks a bit of Spanish because he's got Spanish relatives and he was learning Italian. I think that was a period when he was into pizzas. But <laughs> he, now he's... Te- so when we were in, in Wales recently, he bought the A-level um, Welsh book and yeah. he's, he's now learning well. The problem is he doesn't have anybody to have a conversation with and it's conversational yeah. language that, that uh, you need to learn to. Not well, a shout, a shout out for yeah. my brother, Barry, who's been a guest here twice. And he was brought up in Basildon in Essex with me. Um, but he was then appointed as a Welsh uh, in, uh, Estin inspector. Um, and he, one of the, the rules was you have to you've got to be fluent in Welsh. Yes. So he's now uh, fluent in Welsh and, and, a, and a, a published poet in Welsh as well. So, you know, if oh, you if you really do want to do it. You yeah. can do it yeah. you know, if you've got to do it. And I, I found sort of when I when I left school and started working, my motivation levels to do stuff increased incredibly, you know, because I felt as though I was going to actually benefit from this financially. You know, my career was going to be enhanced. You know, it wasn't just I've got to have a love of it because I want to pass my GCSEs or in those days, the O level. It was about well, some hard cash at the end of this, you know. Right. Let's move on. Stan. <laughs> What's caught your eye this week? Well, well it's very different. <laughs> we've just been. Um, what's caught my eye this week is is um, a shout out really to to schools at Christmas and what they do to to preserve Christmas traditions and to, despite everything, make sure that that the young people in the, have a have a Christmas. And I'm talking schools of, of faith and schools of no faith. It, it's it's something I I believe it to be a tradition rather than rather than a, a religious activity in most cases. But in, in sort of getting the thing about Christmas carols, because I do I do like to 
here. I, I'm not very good at singing, so I don't sing very, but I do like to listen to children singing. You're a softie, aren't you, Stan? You're yeah, a, I'm a You're a softie for Silent Night and Away in the yeah, I still, my, my, my children are in their late 30s and they still get a stocking. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's where we are. Uh, it's not that many years ago when it snowed at Christmas. I think I think the children were both adults then. I I ran out of the back door, jumped as far as I could to leave footprints in the snow that faced the house oh. in big boots, so I could oh. say that. <laughs> and they'll just look at you and go, "You're mad, aren't you?" <laughs> but, did, did you take a photo of that, Stan? Uh, I um, yes, I did. Oh well, I, well we... I don't think I could find it. Oh, I, I knew that I was coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, I nearly broke me back as well by by running out of the back door and trying to twist so you land facing the house again. <laughs> then I had to make the boots a bit sizes a bit. <laughs> Clearly, Father Christmas has got bigger feet than I have. So yeah, and I just got yeah, Dad, right. <laughs> But it's the tradition of it, isn't it? That's it, I think yeah, it's about an anchor point, really. Yeah, what what I picked, having sort of just listened, having been in the governor's meeting at the school to to see that they are the children there are singing, carol service in school, um, nativity in school, singing where the local village turns the Christmas lights on. I think they're at the church this weekend singing, and it is. It's a lot of work for teachers to to do all that in the current circumstances, um, but it remind. Well, I, I then saw a piece in the Times about Christmas carols and and how we've still got them, and and it's it's a piece about Victorians who decided to collect songs from around the country on the fear that they would be lost, and and Vaughan Williams was one who um, found. Um, a song called Forest Green, I think it's called, which he then fitted the words to "O Little Town of Bethlehem" to, uh, and there's one of the the classic Christmas carols. But when you then look at the dates of these things, 150 years old. Yeah. So the Christmas traditions that that I think about and I think went on for you know hundreds of years. And I think they were Queen Victoria, apparently with a German heritage, whatever, brought brought it over, didn't she? That was the Christmas tree. Ah, was it? Father Christmas is from America, right? And traditionally, was um, somebody linked with nature and and dressed in green. And and this sounds bizarre, but it's true. Uh, Coca Cola then put him in red. Oh wow! Coca Cola. Oh god! Commercialism. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So. So we've got. We'll have to put a warning on this chat so that uh, children don't watch it. I think that's the crucial. You've just burst their bubble there. (laughs) Oh, no. The real Father Christmas has always been in red. Ah, I see. Don't, don't. Although, Stan, um, St. Nicholas is actually of Turkish heritage, isn't he? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, we learn all these uh, new things about what we think is, you know, our heritage. And actually, when you dig deeper, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Isn't Saint George Turkish as well? Isn't uh... Is he? Oh my goodness! <laughs> Actually, it might be Saint. Yes, Saint George, I think I both. Think Turkish. Yes, Saint Nicholas, I think, is is from uh, either Norway, Sweden, somewhere like that. Oh, where... it could be. Then I might be getting yeah. it mixed up. Yeah. But yes, there is. So, so yeah, and they're not as up. But I, what what he finishes his his article on in in the Times is, but these connectors 
to older Christmases. And when you sing these songs and when you take mm. part in these traditions, it, it's an anchor point, as you said, Frank, into something that's gone on for at least 150 years, if not longer, via yeah. that collection of songs. And and his view is, let's hope we're not using losing them now. Again, as he says, far too many, in his view, um, trite Christmas songs are sneaking into yes, activities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he, he doesn't... I, I don't think he's contradicting himself because you could argue, well, if that's the case, then, you know, those songs in the 1800s were the modern songs. And he's not saying that. He's saying ones that aren't, haven't got the, the traditional stuff because he actually says, you know, if I, I doubt it'll ever get into a nativity, but uh, uh, was it New York? Oh, yeah. Uh, the <laughs> yeah, the Pogues probably won't get into a nativity, but actually... It is a song that reflects Christmas in some parts of the world and in some parts of society. Yeah, but yeah, I'm a traditionalist and a and a, a romantic, and and Christmas is exhausting, but I I love it. Yeah, Samina, what's caught your eye? Um, what's caught my eye is the um, Education Policy Institute uh, report that was published yesterday on COVID nineteen and disadvantaged pupils and and the impact that that's having on our children and young people. And and there are a couple of things in there that I don't think it was surprising to find out that the gap has widened, uh, you know, from about 18 months to two years. Uh, But I think the other thing is, is the the actual impact of poverty overall that's having on, uh, you know, some of our families and, you know, free school meal rates moving from, 22% 22% in 2019 to 27.6% in 2021. And I suspect that that's going to increase again when you, you look at what's actually happening at the moment. And I think that whole sort of call that they have, the two things that really struck me, one is around the really looking at those children and young people that are persistently disadvantaged yeah. as these opposed to those eight, that drip in and out. Yeah, that's these the ones with 80% um, yeah. Free school meal claims, really, for their entire school life. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I th- and I think the other thing really is looking at how poverty is holistically impacting and and adjusting, you know, the pupil premium uh, sort of amounts that we have at the moment. And but fundamentally, I think it's actually having a poverty strategy that would support what schools do. Because at the moment, you know, I've seen as as you were saying earlier you know, schools really going way beyond the the sort of educational responsibilities that they have. I was in a school earlier this week where there was, you know, really doing all the food bank stuff and making sure there were signposting families. And that's brilliant, you know, that they are doing that. But actually, where is our poverty strategy? You know, we've got energy crisis and the cost of that. We've got food prices, you know, spiralling out. And, you know, we think of Maslow's hierarchy and children having the basics first so that they can learn. And so I think there's a lot in that report that I do generally like that report. The other thing that I do like in that report, uh, and, uh, you know, is the fact that they do have an intersectional approach. They don't just talk about disadvantage. They then look at different groups, which is what my book does, and look at how that impacts on... um, 
uh, special educational needs, yeah. pupils with English as an additional language, those that, you know, from certain minority ethnic groups that have a raw deal, because all of those groups have higher uh, free school meal eligibility. And one of the things that I talk about is that intersectional approach. Let's not just look at it in this binary way of, um, you know, disadvantage, but let's dig a little bit deeper and see what that actually what that actually means and I think that the fact that they are able to share that you know data with us and also put some really good suggestions I just hope politicians listen uh, because it, it just seems bonkers that currently you know we were used to talk about food I mean never even heard of food banks it was for, you know probably the homeless uh, at one point and now it's just they're there and they're becoming used by more and more families as a as a first point of call which for working families as well which just doesn't seem right i think one of the things that i don't think many people realize is how difficult it is to get free school meals now mm. you have to be very poor mm. you know in order I to saw, qualify for that i saw a piece yeah. it must have been an opinion piece um suggesting that instead of of those indicators we look at uh family income mm. Not and so you know it's not a, a case of you know have I got these benefits that entitle me to claim free school yeah. meals, but actually, what is the income to this family? Yeah. Um, I think it'd be very difficult to do, but it it would be a better indicator of of poverty than somebody who can, you know, get get through the system well enough to be able to claim free school meals. It's interesting. the yeah. The report was very clear. That it that it it was pointing out that um, the disadvantage gap was closing up to twenty fifteen. Yes, and then it 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 you know it, it it didn't go into decline, but this in effect it didn't close any further. And actually now COVID, the pandemic has has blown that out of the water. You know, I mean, and and actually today they announced a five percent increase yes. in pupil premium funding. And as the report says, that's not eligible for students post-16, um, where FE has been badly hit in the settlement figure for education, uh, as of early years. You know, and, and one of the weaknesses, I think, in the report was that it, it, because it was only about 11 to 16 or 11 to 18. It was. Um, but actually, you know, I was suggesting, well, we need significant increases in funding for all of these children, you know, that fall into these categories, because we know the families. We know them, in, you know, before they start primary. You know, we need to get that funding stream in. Um, it's not, and it's not. I'm not. It's not all about funding, but it helps. You know, it makes you can make alternative arrangements. You can offer additional support. Um, so I think it's. Yeah, I, I really like the report. Um, I just wish they would. And they're not very good at letting us know that these reports are coming. Because actually, if we knew as educationists, if we knew these were coming, you know, we could and, and they actually offered more time to review the report before the release date. You know, it'd be really helpful to coordinate everybody, you know, to get into it and to, uh -huh. to, have, you know, uh -huh. to publicize it better. Um, OK, there's also I mean, last week, Frank, we, we talked about, mm. you know, the, the social side of this and a lot of this affects education but it isn't it isn't purely mm. educational it, it's it's a social issue and and i was talking to somebody this week who runs a, a company uh doing alternative provision and we were got you know saying things like youth service mm. youth clubs they went within like yeah. six months 
from from being a vibrant part of of what life was like as a teenager to to having no existence of that whatsoever. Uh, and I know his co- his company have have used ex um, youth clubs etc as part of of their development of their business. But I remember being when I first joined the advisory side of things in the local authority. The, the development of the youth service was an absolute priority and, and lots of money was going into it, new new hubs for students and everything. And then it, it just stopped. Yeah. And, and all that was starting. No, there has to be a connection be, between what goes on in society and how we treat our people aged <laughs> between 12 and, and 18. I, 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 I mean, think... even things stand. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say that even like, you know, swimming pools and stuff, they're shutting down because they can't afford to heat. I mean, that's just basic things that we've taken for granted that anybody can go and access and, you know, swim if they want to. That's going to have massive repercussions because it's just not affordable anymore. No. Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, Well, what's caught my eye was the Ofsted annual report, um, which came out on Tuesday. They always come out on Tuesdays. Um, (laughs) And as somebody who's written, uh, I think I did three um, uh, education sections, mostly did ITE and various other things for previous reports. Um, I was really shocked um, that the, and, well, shocked and I suppose disappointed that the annual report, the big message from the annual report in terms of education was the recruitment and retention crisis that's facing schools. Now, any of us who are connected with schools know this is a problem. You, you've spoken about it today, Samina, about MFL. Uh-huh. We know uh-huh. that the, the figures are, uh, have been poor for a number of years about, you know, the targets for for the number of, say, physics teachers that we need, you know, and how how, how short we are in that regard. Um, but I, sadly, I read probably about fifty Ofsted reports a week. I just I just go through, and I take a different phase. Um, so it might be primary, it might be special. I, even I look at independents um, to be honest, the regulatory ones. I I have not read anything about the problems of recruitment and retention in school inspection reports. I've read a lot about mm-hmm. problems with the curriculum, you know, not having sufficient expertise, children not being able to recall some bit of facts or something which have been used to sort of take down a judgment or two. And I'm thinking, well, where's that evidence come from? And for those of you who don't know, well, well it may be different now. When I was asked to draft these reports, um, you know, you get all, uh, you're con- I was connected with the data team in Ofsted and actually I was given a minder who actually, as I drafted sections, challenged me as to where the evidence was for this. And uh, and it's very frustrating, but really useful, um, because most of the time the evidence was there, but I can remember a couple of points that I made where there wasn't enough evidence. Well, where's the evidence? In, in the If inspectors are going into schools to, yes. to, to share the information with parents about these are the issues, these are the big issues that the school's facing, and not once are they reporting on the recruitment and retention issues in schools. I'm thinking, you're not doing the job properly, are you? You know, you're so driven by a curriculum focus, which it seems to have been, um, that actually that's overtaken your your thinking about what are the big issues here. So it just sort of made me feel disappointed that we've reached a point where you can basically go and 
do thousands of inspections and not draw on the evidence that that's telling you because you've actually convinced inspectors that the curriculum is more important than the recruitment issue. Yeah, and I, I'd sort of reiterate that, Frank, from the other side, because obviously I support lots of my schools when Ofsted come, and we've had quite a few since the new Ofsted uh, inspection framework, and those questions aren't even being asked. So if they're not being asked, head teachers may actually they obviously put it down in their SEF in yes. terms of the context of the school, and we know, especially when you want subject specialists, you know, if you haven't got the right teachers there, and we know teachers are the most important thing in terms of you know impacting on education but if it's not even being asked or considered and it's not being written in the um, evaluation form it doesn't then translate into the reports and the other thing is the reports are so short yeah. even what they do cover it doesn't really capture it and I'm not saying there should be big tones but actually it's it is, as they say, you know, written for parents, but it doesn't really say much. And I think over the years, the quality of the reports have declined considerably. So you don't pick up even the specific issues about the school, but never mind about the, the bigger issues. I would strongly argue for a professional document for the school and the yes. parents again. Because at the moment, I mean, I, I was talking to an inspector this week and, and uh, she was saying... The feedback is is the feedback to senior managers is is where you need to record everything and you because the the professional stuff's there, but that's that's not good enough. If it's there, yeah. it's not a big step to say, well, put it in writing, and then the school's got yeah. something to work the, the, with. The issue there, Stan, is the people that are determining that approach have never sat as a head teacher or a senior leadership team at yeah. the end of two days where. You're on the yep. edge of RI, special measures or good. And and actually, when you get the judgment, if it's good, there's that, oh, you don't, you don't really care yep. what follows. And no, if you get the RI expecting it to be good, you then th you then get into this sort of mindset yeah. of, oh, what does that mean? You're not thinking about the dialogue. No, I, I agree, Fred. And I, even when we used to do feedback, I used to do mm -hmm. feedback to people at the end of an inspection, I, I would say to them, look, it, within this, and the word was unsatisfactory there, you're going to hear... The word unsatisfactory but don't let that then cloud your vision for the rest of the stuff that you're mm. going to hear but i you know i was absolutely clear that once that word was out nothing else went went no. in, into the head and you know i've seen where people have kept have had somebody else in to take minutes and stuff but it, it's not the same as a professional document that you can refer to later and say these were the issues that were raised and the detail behind them and this is how we've addressed it. As we go, as it's slagging off Ofsted week, but also you <laughs> can have another one. But no, but, I'm but not slagging uh, off. I just think, but an no MP, a professional document. But an MP spoke in Parliament last week, this week, yeah. about their child's Ofsted report, which they didn't agree with, and lo and behold, they've now got a meeting with the chief inspector. What's that about? Yeah. You know, I mean, I I imagine that that every single head teacher who feels aggrieved also wants that conversation with the yeah. you know why not you know and and, and I, was it the uh, ts who said oh so there's a vip lane towards the chief yeah. inspector you know <laughs> this is very easy journalism isn't it but it's so bloody obvious what they're doing uh -huh. they're laying themselves wide open about this sort of cronyism you know sitting basically together to decide you know it it loses all that independence for me and i think that's where we're headed with that's where we've gone with inspection it's been pre not prejudged
but driven too far down narrow lanes. Um, but if one person, because of their position, can get a conversation about an inspection with the chief inspector, where does without fear or favour well, fit in? I, I suppose the chief inspector would say, I'm just doing it to explain the fear and favour element of it. But anyway, right. And, uh, Samina, I don't know, because I didn't warn you at the beginning before we started recording about Room 101. Have you? Yes. Ah, so you've thought about, because oh, I was thinking, oh gosh, I'm going to land Samina in it here. Um, but have you got something that goes into Room 101? It's a biggie. I have. Oh, and what I would, I, I would like now. is um, for educational policy and strategy to be taken out of the hands of politicians. And I think it should be cross-party commission organisation that has people that work on the ground as well, not just the good and the great that we always get, um, that actually comes up with at least a 10-year strategy for education that's that would be focused on. So I'm actually taking it a little bit further, more sure. collaboration in the system, yeah. really focused on the place and people working, say, at a ward or at a local authority level or, you know, city, region, and then even a region level, really looking at what issues are pertinent to them and having a strategy that's going to have impact with with decent funding and one of the things that I've been going on for a long time obviously I do talk about vulnerable groups and that's my sort of you know passion and how we can make things better for them um, but also the north-south divide in certain regions so, you know I'm based in Yorkshire and Humber and you know results there's lots of reasons why the results are what they are, yeah. but where is the sort of strategy to address that? And actually in the past, talking about Ofsted, you know, I've raised that with Ofsted saying, when you're writing your uh, reports, there's no mention of some of the issues facing the regions. It's a very monolithic, it you is. know, report. Yeah. So where are the nuances about what we need to do at particular, you know, uh, regional and sort of city level to to address those those issues. If we if we're really sincere about making improvements, we've got to do that. Yeah, and I, well, you're talking to one of Frank's favourite subjects there. When when Frank and I first <laughs> first started putting the world to rights many years ago, the one thing we were consistent about was a, a geographical area inspection of of yeah. all services to say yeah. what's it like to live here. And how can it get better? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think um, yeah, I, I I agree with you, uh, Samina. It 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 does also require delegate uh, devol devolution of funding. You know, funding's got to come locally, and 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 you know, at the moment, um, there's too much jumping through the hoops and local authorities and groups bidding for you know scarce resources. That's no I way agree. to run. Uh, you know, strategically to run uh, an improvement to tackle poverty, to tackle leveling up. That's not the way mm -hmm. to do it. You know, no. I mean, uh, uh, can we finish on this? I I live in uh, Cheadle Hume. It's uh, a prosperous area of South Manchester. We have a um, uh, conservative MP um, who this is, and it's a marginal seat, so it flicks from uh, Lib Dem to Conservative. We are quite a wealthy area, um, but in the towns fund. This this area, which I think out of the three hundred and fifty areas, was the was three hundred and twenty fifth least deprived. So we we got twenty five million pounds for a new railway station in Cheadle. And I I think it was Barnsley, got now. 
I think, yeah. well, hang on, you know, th this, th this is simply not right, is it? And that's not, and that, this is a, a sort of just this bidding war that's going yeah. on. And also yeah. the, the, the suggestion, it may not be right, but you just get that feeling that it'd be very helpful for the local Tory MP to have that 25 million. It'd be very helpful for the community, don't get me wrong. You know? yeah. But actually, if you're looking at priorities, this doesn't seem to be the way to do it. Um, I, I think, Frank, anywhere where bids have to go in, become inherently unfair because what you're saying is the people who can write the best bids not the yeah. people who need that support the most yeah. are the ones that yeah. get the funding yeah. hey can i just say that's over 40 odd minutes so this is one of the longest chats we've had <laughs> so uh um samina it's been an absolute pleasure to have you as a yeah, guest fantastic. this week oh, thank um, you and I We'd love you to come back. We say that to every guest, and, we, and I'll be in touch with you to try and get another day uh, towards the end of next year, if that's all right. Yeah, um, it's been a you. pleasure chatting to you, and uh, uh, we're one, one, one more Frankenstein chat before the end of before Christmas and before the end yeah. of the year. And next week we've got uh, Eric Craven, um, the sort of uh, colleague who was a former HMI Sen specialist, who's a bit of a poet now. So he's coming back. Um, uh, next week's done so we've got him for christmas so uh, anyway thank you everybody thanks for watching thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you all next week for our final edition of uh, 2022 bye-bye thank you bye, bye. <laughs>